touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland and today I'm joined by a very special guest host. Say hello, Joe. Hi. I'm Joe McCormick. Yes. From Forward Thinking, coming yeah. over to visit our, uh, our our friendly little neighbor podcast, Tech Stuff. Right. For those of you who may not have listened to a Forward Thinking podcast, you should fix that. I mean, Lauren, who was my former co-host, is still on Forward Thinking, and so is Joe, and so am I. And we talk about future stuff. They just want to hear Lauren. You need to That's, well, back that, down they on can our still, involvement They can here. still hear her by going to Forward Thinking. <laughs> so, uh, But, Joe, you had this idea that was kind of milling around for a blog post, but it just never quite fit anywhere, right? Yeah, but I finally wanted to talk about it with you, and it's about ways that technology could, or at least people thought, could end war as we know it. Right. So Bring about world peace. You've got a lot, like, people who are... are Real innovators, really uh, like forward thinkers, for lack of a better word, often get kind of idealistic and optimistic, sometimes perhaps unrealistically so, right? And so we, we have some examples here of people who very confidently at the time proclaimed that the technology either they invented or that they were an advocate for would be the end of war. For one reason or another, and they fall into different kinds of categories. So we're going right. to talk about all of them. Yeah. So there are several different ways, I guess, you could imagine that war between humans could end. I mean, sure. On one hand, it's kind of hard to imagine that because it's just such a fundamental part of human nature and human history. I and mean, obviously, it would be a fantastic thing for us to not violently kill each other in great numbers at intervals of time. Sure. Uh, but. There are a few ways you could look at how this might happen. So one would be to sort of make war too risky mm. so that it's just not in your self-interest to pursue it. Gotcha. So the idea being that even if you feel you have a, an advanced military, that to wage war of any type would, would incur such losses as to nullify any positive effect that that war might have. Even, sure. You know, so it, it just cannot be of a net advantage to you. The only way to win is not to play. I guess another way, though this is kind of harder to imagine how it would be done, would be to say that you would make war completely impracticable or physically impossible. So it's just you somehow create a technology that makes it so that people cannot actually do it. You want to shoot somebody, but it, your gun doesn't work. It's just filled with crayons. Yeah, that, that would be a more difficult kind of technology to imagine. But some people have sort of gone down that road, and, and it'll blur together with the category I just mentioned. Um, another way would probably be to sort of make war irrelevant, mm. like to eliminate the motivations that would drive people to war. So you imagine that you might come up with a list of different reasons people would declare war on one another, and if you can eliminate all of those reasons for people wanting to go, mm -hmm. hypothetically, they won't go. Gotcha. So this would be kind of the Star Trek future, where you have created a world where where you've eliminated need, therefore, war is a thing of the past. Yeah. Gotcha. The other one would be to sort of change us, to, to change our outlook or to change our nature or at least give us some kind of perspective that would make war ridiculous to where we just realize it's no good and we don't want to do it. Gotcha. 
And uh, we've got some some actual examples that fall into these various categories. Yeah, some of them fall and, into more than one. Well, and they're, one of the funny things is you don't have to go digging into the annals of crank history to find people who thought world peace would come about by one or one of these methods. In fact, you can find really smart, famous, powerful, influential people who thought technology could get us down one of these roads to world peace. And I think the first one we should talk about is a guy who's very Internet famous these days, Nikola Tesla. Although you did say, you know, you don't have to look at cranks. Wow. Let's, oh, you're you're getting on your anti-Tesla. Look, I just high in, horse in our in, in high the, electrical horse. The episode that just published was a rerun about our episode on Tesla, where I talked about advocating for Tesla and the Tesla versus Edison debate. Well, I mean, it's it's not that I'm against Tesla, but it's pretty true that he had some mental health issues. But at any rate, let's talk about this idea, this idea of a of an invention that negates war. Right. Tesla thought that you could build something that would make war impossible. What was that thing? Well, it's Tesla's famous death ray. Which immediately, as soon as you hear the name, you think, yeah, that that sounds peaceful. Well, I don't know if he actually called it death ray. I don't <laughs> the, think those were his words. The New York Times called it a death ray. Yeah. Uh, so we've got a quote from Nikola Tesla. This is from an article from 1937 called A Machine to End War, which featured an extended uh, interview with Nikola Tesla, mm -hmm. where uh, he gives the following quote. We cannot abolish war by outlawing it. We cannot end it by disarming the strong. War can be stopped not by making the strong weak, but by making every nation weak or strong able to defend itself. Hitherto, all devices that could be used for defense could also be utilized to serve for aggression. This nullified the value of the improvement for purposes of peace. But I was fortunate enough to evolve a new idea and to perfect means which can be used chiefly for defense. If it is adopted, it will revolutionize the relations between nations. It will make any country, large or small, impregnable against armies, airplanes, and other means for attack. My invention requires a large plant, <laughs> but once it is established, it will be possible to destroy anything, men or machines, approaching within a radius of 200 miles. It will, so to speak, provide a wall of power, offering an insuperable obstacle against any effective aggression. So uh, when he says plant, he, of course, means power plant. He does not no, mean... No, not a Venus flytrap. Yeah not, yeah, not an enormous redwood or something. So this death ray... As, as was referred to in the article, uh, was never actually fleshed out, as far as we know. Tesla, first of all, was famous for not writing a lot of stuff down. He, Or at least that's what he claimed. He claimed he could uh, envision inventions completely fully formed in his head and even take them apart virtually in his head and examine them to see how they worked and then eventually build the things and they worked exactly the way they were supposed to. Uh, that's part of the, the Tesla story, whether or not that's true. I don't know. But at any rate, we don't have any evidence that Tesla had anything remotely resembling a death ray or what the actual mechanism would have been. Well, and he says, my apparatus projects particles which may be relatively large or of microscopic dimensions, enabling us to convey to a small area at a great distance trillions of times more energy than is possible with rays of any kind. Which doesn't really sound like it means anything. But at yeah. any rate, uh, during this time of Tesla's life, he was in his 70s. 
And this was when he was really kind of mentally, it appeared he was breaking down. Uh, he had already shown some signs of obsessive compulsive behaviors, possibly even some paranoid schizophrenia, because it was around this time also when he claimed that he had uh, received transmissions from people either from Venus or Mars. So, you know, it's things were a little rough for Tesla. He was also in the process of moving from one hotel to the other because he would get evicted due to incurring enormous debts. But because he had such a rock star status as a physicist and uh, an electrical engineer, he would be invited to go live in another hotel until he had run up the debts there. So <laughs> he may very well have just been trying to earn as much money as he possibly could selling this idea. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, not necessarily, I don't mean that he didn't think it was real. He may very well believe that he could in fact produce this device, but he didn't. So, uh, but it, this definitely falls into the realm of let's make war impossible to happen by creating something that would prevent the very act of aggression from reaching the intended target. Once another country knows that you have this capability to stop any incoming attack, there's no reason they would ever attack you because it wouldn't work, right? Of course. I, I mean, mean, that's the that's the logic behind it. And the idea, actually, now, whether you're talking about uh, a ray or a thing that he doesn't want to call a ray but is instead projecting particles or whatever it is, yeah. this idea has not necessarily died. The basic idea of creating a technological infrastructure that would repel automatically all incoming attacks and make them pointless. Right. Uh, how about the Star Wars initiative? Yeah, the... The Strategic Defense Initiative in the 1980s, often referred to as the Star Wars program. Uh, Derisively. Yeah, I've really wanted to do a full episode about this to really explain what the concept was, what the motivations were, because this is this ends up being a very political, uh, I, a very political story, not just a technology story. In fact, it's more political than technological in many ways. Uh, the whole story. Strategic Defense Initiative was fueled by the Cold War between the United States and the then Soviet Union. And the idea was that if you have a, a system in place that can block any incoming missile attack, then your country is going to be at an advantage and be safe from aggression. Uh, this was during an era that we'll talk about very shortly, uh, the whole idea of mutually assured destruction. But we'll get to that in a little bit. So, very similar idea. Uh, yeah, there's another idea that's a lot like this, which is actually in use today. Israel's Iron Dome system. Have you read about this? It's been in the news lately. Yeah, it went into effect in 2011. This is a, an anti-rocket defense system. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's meant to intercept rockets that are fired from outside of Israel into Israel. And it does this by firing off uh, interceptor missiles. Uh, they're called Tamir surface-to-air missiles. And you've got a radar system that first detects an incoming rocket. And then you have computers running predictive software that will look at the, the pathway of the rocket, predict which way it's going, and then send an interceptor missile to destroy that rocket before it reaches its intended target. It's even supposed to only focus on rockets that are aimed at populated areas. So if a rocket were to be aimed at an open area where there's not likely anyone to be harmed, it won't uh, target that rocket. The reason being that interceptor missiles are expensive. We're talking like sure. sh just shy of $100,000 a pop. 
I mean, so, also I'm imagining that the system at large must just be incredibly expensive and complicated because if it's actually able to calculate the trajectory of an incoming rocket to figure out whether it needs to intercept or not. Yeah. I mean, wow. <laughs> and there's been some criticism of the system. One is based on just a skepticism that it's really effective. The idea being that it's possible that in a display of its effectiveness, when because uh, just recently there was a news story where the system was able to shoot down 15 different incoming rockets that were fired simultaneously, uh, and that that's really impressive. But there's some critics who suggest it's kind of in a conspiracy theory way that it could just be the, the uh, Israeli government firing off the interceptor missiles and then having them detonate because you can't see these rockets with the naked eye when they're flying through the air. They're they're too small for you to notice and they fly too high for you to notice. So it's possible that you could detonate interceptor missiles then uh, and then say, oh, that's a successful interception. I'm not going to go so far as to say that that conspiracy theory holds merit. I I more inclined to believe that this is, in fact, an actual demonstration of it working. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also critics who say it gives any system that's like this, whether it's the Strategic Defense Initiative or the Iron Dome Initiative, it can create an unhealthy political environment, meaning that if you have this kind of technology at your disposal, you may feel that you are to some degree invulnerable. It's weird to say to some degree, but at any rate, that you are largely invulnerable to incoming attack, which some argue means that you have less of an, of an incentive to pursue peace. Well, yeah, if we want to transition to the next item on our list here, some people might say that it's very important that we all feel vulnerable in order to maintain peace. Yeah, yeah, this is where we get into the idea of mutually assured destruction. So this is, uh, it doesn't have a very friendly name, but believe it or not, for the past century, there have been a lot of people who thought that this was one of the best technological routes to world peace. Yeah. And in fact, this is, this is kind of piggybacked onto Tesla's idea, right? The idea that if you are in possession of enough firepower of whatever sort, that that's enough to, to deter people or other countries from attacking you. This, ends up being repeated over and over again up and up through the Cold War and before the Cold War. Uh, before the Cold War, really? Yeah, Hiram Maxim, who invented the machine gun, said this device is going to end all war because it's so dangerous that no one oh, would dare man. attack. Yeah, and that ended up being very much wrong, especially I mean the the whole story of World War One and World War Two certainly proves right. that. Orville Wright believed that the airplane would end war. The airplane would be such a incredibly superior vehicle that there'd be no reason to ever declare war for fear of what would rain down upon you. Obviously, that became a very important tool in war. In fact, I think there are some people who would look at those two examples you just cited and say that those might have been some of the leading causes of World War One. Or at, I mean, least, obviously, at least the leading tools. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, causes in the sense that obviously there was a lot of uh, international political tension. I mean, does anybody really know what caused World War One? I? I think there's a lot <laughs> of confusion. But uh, certainly an opinion that I've heard before, and I don't know enough to dismiss it out of hand, is to say that a major factor in what led to World War One was the acquiring of new war-making technology and people building up their military stockpiles and 
basically looking for a way to test this new stuff out. Well, that's part of it. I mean, during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, you had all these different countries in Europe, including Germany, which had just formed as an actual country. I mean, a lot of people forget that Germany as a unified country didn't really exist until the mid 19th century. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, since it had previously been part of, of various empires, these different countries were all trying to make sure they cemented their stability, that they, they made sure they were safe from other nations, which meant investing in militaries for Germany and for the uh, United Kingdom. That was largely naval. They were investing heavily in their navies. Um, but, what it, what it also meant was that you had these these incredibly powerful armies around Europe that were ready to go at any moment with no particular opponent but you also had these incredibly complex treaties between countries yeah so when there would be a precipitating event it wasn't in at least in hindsight it wasn't a huge surprise to see it kind of escalate into the major conflict it became what so, was that uh, historical onion headline about World War One? I? I think it's something like war declared by all. Yeah, it's a, that's fairly accurate. I mean, it certainly didn't all happen simultaneously, but it is what again, in hindsight, you can totally see how it happened. But at the time, I'm sure people just thought it was it was unimaginable. Uh, but that that philosophy continued beyond. World War One. Yeah, well, so it's quite obvious that machine guns and airplanes have not made war obsolete. But there's a more questionable proposal, which is that uh, maybe nuclear weapons have. Yeah. All right. So you've heard of the the scientist Edward Teller. Sure. Uh, he was uh, born in Hungary and uh, immigrated to the United States. And he had this to say about scientists in general, which was the scientist is not responsible for the laws of nature. It is his job to find out how these laws operate It is the scientist's job to find the ways in which these laws can serve the human will. However, it is not the scientist's job to determine whether a hydrogen bomb should be constructed, whether it should be used or how it should be used. Now, the reason he said that was that he worked on the Manhattan Project. All right. He was right. one of the scientists. In fact, he was one of the three scientists who convinced Albert Einstein that he should tell the president about the powers of nuclear fission, which you mean then the president of the United States. Yes, the president Roosevelt. of the United States. Yes. Yeah. In order to uh, precipitate the development of the atomic bomb. Yeah. And then there became another discussion within the same group of the Manhattan Project about the development of what they were calling a super bomb, a thermonuclear weapon. And Teller was very much on the side of we should make this thing. This should, this is something we should invest in. Uh, and then there were other scientists like Oppenheimer. Robert Oppenheimer. Yeah. Who said, this is a bad idea. We should not do this thing. And there was a lot of disagreement, uh, which led to some pretty controversial stuff down the line. But at any rate, you had Teller advocating for this. Now, why did he advocate for this? Well, he grew up in Europe during a very tumultuous time. And developed a distinct dislike for fascism and communism uh, before leaving to come to America. One can sympathize. Yeah, he he saw Europe being torn apart. I mean, it was already uh, it had already gone through World War One and was entering World War Two or was about to enter World War Two by the time he was leaving. And things just got worse from there. So 
in his mind, one of the worst things in the world was the formation of the Soviet Union. He saw communism as being probably the greatest danger to the human race. And his argument was that if we don't pursue this sort of weapons program, this arms race, the Soviet Union certainly will. So if we don't do it, we're going to be left behind and we'll be vulnerable. The only way to ensure that we're safe is to also engage in an arms race to develop these incredibly destructive weapons and thus be a big enough threat where the Soviet Union would never attack us. I mean, we would surely never attack anyone else unprovoked. So <laughs> this is just for us to make sure that they don't attack us. That was the that was a, the general philosophy. So build up your arms to the point where you would be such a destructive force that it would be crazy to attack you, which is, again, very similar to what we've already talked about. Right. So now we have gigantic nuclear stockpiles yeah. on Earth. Yes. Uh, as a result of this doctrine. But this is this is interesting because I feel like while on one hand it's not a very friendly sounding doctrine, some people might still argue for the wisdom of MAD. Uh, well, it's there. I mean, there would be a lot of people. I think it is completely wrong to say that it would make war obsolete. I mean, there have mm -hmm. been tons of wars since nuclear weapons were invented, you know, involving nuclear powers. But it some people, I think, might still say that, well, maybe the presence of all these nuclear weapons did prevent all out war between, say, the United States and the Soviet Union. We right. just have to keep in mind that there have been tons of proxy wars throughout the years fought by these powers sort of through other countries. And sure. So so like essentially that. what you're saying is the existence of thermonuclear weapons has prevented a thermonuclear war <laughs> that without the yeah. existence of these thermonuclear weapons in one or other of the the parties, the possibility of thermonuclear war rises. But because, well, you have this this balance where you have people, you know, who realize what the implications of starting such a war would be, it hasn't happened. Yeah. Even if you were to agree with this, this idea, you might not necessarily think it's good for the world as a whole. <laughs> it might be better for the people living in the United States and the Soviet Union and not so much for their allies. Uh, but I'm not even saying I agree with this. I just wanted to say, well, this is one that's we, we can't put it in the totally ridiculous camp because I think there are still people who think that mutually assured destruction had some kind of effectiveness. Yeah. Now, this has also led to the very popular trope of creating a doomsday device that is so dangerous that that's what protects you from attack, right? Right. The idea of a fail-deadly device, as depicted in the movie Dr. Strangelove. Which... How, how would something like a fail-deadly device work? Well, in Dr. Strangelove, the way it works is that it's a device that once initiated cannot be canceled. And in, in Dr. Strangelove, it's, it's the Soviet Union that has built a device that will automatically activate if any sort of oncoming attack, bombing attack were to target the Soviet Union. And once it detects such an attack, it then initiates this device, which is you can't turn it off. And yeah. it and it's designed to kill essentially everything. It's automatic. Yeah. It, it's just. And because you can't turn it off, then the idea is that it's the perfect deterrent because you just tell everyone, hey, if you attack us, this thing goes on, it kills everybody and we can't stop it. We, we even if we want to, we cannot stop this thing. And uh, the the main character or the title character of the movie, Dr. Strangelove, he's not the main character, but he is the title character, points out that this 
particular kind of device is only useful if the world knows about it. If it's secret. <laughs> As it is in the movie. But then it turns out like the, yeah. the Russian uh, I ambassador. I think they were just planning on. Yeah, the Russian ambassador was something. like, well, we are going to have a big event next week. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately, you've jumped the gun type of thing. And uh, uh, supposedly, Dr. Strangelove himself was based off of Teller. Oh, really? Yeah, that's the that's the rumor, although whether or not that's true, I do not know. But it's um, it's certainly interesting that, uh, you know, this this kind of idea has filtered into the the fiction as well as into reality. This is also what fed into that Star Wars program we talked about earlier. The idea that, well, if the Soviet Union also has these major massive weapons and we have these massive weapons do we really feel comfortable that just the presence of those weapons is enough to deter a thermonuclear war? What if we could end up creating a system that would shoot down enemy weapons so that we remain safe? And that was what really um, led to this, that strategic defense initiative. And Teller was a major proponent for that. He he really wanted to see this enacted. Uh, ultimately, that technology did not prove to be very reliable, and it didn't really seem like it would actually do what it was supposed to do um, at the time. We probably could develop much better technology now, but it's a very different world now because the Cold War is over. Sure. So even if we accept that, okay, what if we believe that mutually assured destruction prevented all-out nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union, it still didn't prevent all kinds of other smaller wars during that time period and... We can't say that it will necessarily always work in the future. I mean, it's something that depends on everybody being sort of rational and self-interested and on your technology being reliable and not breaking. Right. And, and, and not it just there are a lot of contingencies that go into this being a good strategy for avoiding major warfare. Right. right. Not mistaking a flock of geese for incoming missile attack. That kind right, of thing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean. You could argue that saying mutually assured destruction is the reason we haven't had a nuclear war is equivalent to saying, hey, I've got this magic rock that keeps tigers away. Do you see any tigers here? That proves it works. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's pretty apt. Yeah. So we don't want to just be doom and gloom here. I mean, that's no, let's stop talking about weapons and look at other ways technology could, in fact, prevent all war in the future and lead to a happy, peaceful flower time. Yeah, this is more of the the, the idealistic uh, version of people who came up with technologies and, and the, their reasoning behind why they thought the technology they had either developed or advocated for would end war. And one of them goes back to a, a fellow um, named Marconi, you know. He didn't just play the mamba. No, he did not listen to the radio. Uh, he, well, he did listen to the radio. He, he made the radio make noise. Uh, so Marconi, often credited as the inventor of the radio. Can you pronounce his first name? Can I? I could try. Guglielmo. Gugli- Guglielmo. Yeah, I would say. But my my. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I imagine Elmo from Sesame Street, but with googly eyes. My my Italian is worse than any of the other foreign languages I don't speak. It's probably the worst out of all of them. Well, no, Greek is maybe worse. Please enjoy our ignorance. At any rate, uh, yeah. So Marconi, who is credited as the inventor of the radio, I know the Tesla fans out there are are up in arms, and I I agree. Uh, Marconi used a lot of Tesla's patents. According to Tesla, was like, he's a good fellow. He's using 17 of my patents. 
but but he is the first person to transmit a an encoded letter in Morse code across the Atlantic, and that's why he is often referred to as the inventor of the radio. So he's into wireless. Very much so. He believed that we were going to enter a wireless age where we wouldn't just have wireless communication. We'd have wireless power, which goes back to what Tesla believed, too. He was very much an advocate for that as well. But he also thought we'd have wireless commerce and wireless fertilization. I don't know what, what that means. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there was a, an article where uh, a, a reporter had interviewed Mark Honey. It was in uh, Technical World magazine in October 1912. Yeah, so this way back in 1912. And, and Mark Honey was kind of just thinking out loud about the possibilities of the future. I mean, think about this. This is an era where we just had really mastered the the harnessing of electromagnetic uh, radiation for the purposes of communication. It seemed to, at this point, like anything could potentially be possible. Well, and let's go right ahead and say it. I believe radio certainly did change the world. Absolutely. I mean, it, it changed the world, even you would say changed the world almost definitely for the better in lots and lots of ways. But when he says, quote, the coming of the wireless era will make war impossible because it will make war ridiculous. Yeah. He turned out a little bit wrong. Yeah. Now, I greatly admire the reason behind what he said, you know, because it now granted it assumes that people will try to comport themselves with compassion and rationality mm -hmm. and also let go of things that are culturally ingrained for generations, sometimes millennia in some areas. And that is a lot to ask for. But his idea was that this wireless era would result in a world where we are able to understand one another and communicate with one another so freely that we would end up resolving disagreements before it would ever get to a point where warfare would even be a consideration. The... I mean, I don't want to say this about someone who's obviously a brilliant man, much smarter than me, but that's so naive. It is. <laughs> it's, But it's so sweet. You also. want it to be true. Yeah. The, the idea that, well, maybe we're just having lack of communication. Yeah. We're, we're not getting through to each other. But if we have wireless radio going from every country to every other country, we can just talk it out. Now, the truly ironic part of this is that radio would play an instrumental role in warfare. <laughs> yeah. Uh, everything from communication to radar and all sorts of other applications. I mean, not to mention just stoking anger around the world with talk radio hosts. Well, yeah, well, and propaganda is a huge part of it. I mean, sure. it, and in fact, propaganda, you could argue, would be the opposite of what Marconi was envisioning. Instead of it being this kind of nationalistic approach where, you know, it's it's a very simple us versus them story where you make us as as noble as possible and them as evil and wicked as possible in your mm -hmm. in your narrative i mean that's you know that's that's probably it seems to me exactly the opposite of what marconi's idealistic vision of the future would have been uh he also thought with this wireless age that we would probably have more access to resources than we do now which would help alleviate the reasons for going to war in the first place. Sure. So not just communication, but resources. Well, he's not the only person in history. In fact, he's not the only famous, brilliant person in history. 
to have predicted that changes in access to resources would be able to obviate the need for war. I mean, there is an idea that, okay, at least a large number of the struggles that we experience in our lives are over resources. We need food, we need water, we need space and shelter. And so we are, I mean, life is a struggle. We are competing for things that we need. I wonder how much you can really chalk war up to this, but let's take a look at somebody who thought that you basically could. So you're talking about the chemist Pierre-Eugène Marcelin Berthelot. Yeah, Berthelot. Yeah. so important chemist. Very important chemist. Brilliant man. Absolutely brilliant man. And uh, he he had uh, some pretty... Pretty amazing things, some amazing predictions that he made. He was also interviewed for a magazine article. This was in McClure's magazine in September 1894, and the article was titled Foods in the Year 2000, Professor Bertolo's Theory that Chemistry Will Displace Agriculture. Now, some of his predictions in here, while they haven't exactly come true, are kind of perceptive of some of the the food innovations we might see coming down the road. I mean, right. obviously not by the year 2000, but still on the way. And not 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 uh solely through chemistry, which right. was his his vision. He was But we, we do now have lab-grown beef. Absolutely. Yes. So he was looking at the world through the eyes of a chemist. And this is right at the era where synthesizing chemicals was starting to really become uh you know, an amazing industry. And mm-hmm. he foresaw an era where we'd be able to synthesize organic compounds as easily as anything else to the point where we could synthesize in the lab anything. We could synthesize meat. We could synthesize vegetables. We could synthesize alcohol and tobacco. And his idea was that once we get to this world, which he thought would be around the year 2000, I've got more of his quote in a second that um, will will really kind of uh, pull in his idea of why this would change the world. He was sure that this kind of development would mean that one, you would end up eliminating a lot of the problems of the world because you would have a surplus of resources, no longer a scarcity, which would be a good thing on its own, of course. And keep in mind, this is uh, late 19th century Europe, a time when there were some serious famines going on around Europe that were leading to lots of of strife. And so hunger was definitely one of the big motivators. And he thought, well, if you can eliminate hunger, you've eliminated a large reason why countries go to war. You you take care of that resources problem. He also thought that we would develop food that is so delicious and nutritious and edifying that it would improve the moral nature of mankind itself. So in other words, you would eat this food and you would become a better person. And that would also help lead to the end of war. So not only would we have a surplus of resources, but we'd be better people. And therefore, we would not go to war because we would have compassion for our fellow men. So, which is, again, an interesting concept. Uh, the idea that, you know, make sure you get your, your fruits and veg in. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll go to war with Spain. I mean, that's kind of... <laughs> Well, there were a lot of weird ideas floating around at the time about how nutrition, like, created the the personality of a nation and stuff like that. Yeah. They they thought weird stuff in Europe in the 19th century. This is true. Uh, Here is one of his longer quotes, and I think it's absolutely charming. Uh, Again, you probably would have to chalk this up as being naive, but still very charming. 
Man should grow in sweetness and nobility because he will have done with war, with existence based upon the slaughter of beasts. Perhaps this is only a dream, remember. Synthetic chemistry, or something that we might call spiritual chemistry, will develop means to as profoundly alter man's moral nature as material chemistry will change the conditions of his environment. There is no fear that art, beauty, and the charm of human existence are destined to disappear. If the surface of the earth ceases to be divided, and I may say disfigured, by the geometrical devices of agriculture, it will regain its natural verdure of woods and flowers." Man, becoming familiar with the principles and responsibilities of self-government, will be more easily governed. The favored portions of the earth will become vast gardens in which the human race will dwell amid a peace, a luxury, and an abundance recalling the golden age of legendary lore. These are dreams, of course, but science may surely be permitted to dream sometimes. If it were not for our dreams, where would it be our impulse to progress? Which I think is a beautiful thought. Yeah, sure. I I, I wish it had turned out that way. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is like uh, Tesla's case. This is one where we haven't actually achieved the technological advance that he says is required to bring about this future. So unlike mutually assured destruction or unlike wireless radio, mm-hmm. It's not one we can look at and say, well, the technology's here and your prediction fell flat. The technology is just not here yet, and maybe it never will be. So- well, yeah, and even if it does get here, and even if we get to a point where it's incredibly nutritious, I think this this moral yeah. uh, improvement is probably based upon more 19th century philosophy than, than our current understanding. Also, you know, unless you just take it off the menu... You're not going to stop me from eating some of the horrible, horrible food I love. (laughs) The other thing I would say about this is, obviously, at the ground level, the struggle over resources does matter very much. But we're talking about war here. We're talking about nations mobilizing vast organized forces and superior weaponry. I mean, at that level, how many wars are started by people who aren't getting enough to eat? Yeah, a lot of those, a lot of reasons for war are outside of resources. Resources yeah. often play a very important part in oh, war. Oh, sure, sure. But there, they might be resources beyond what we need to survive and be healthy. You know, we might, I, I can see a world where everybody has complete access to nutritious pills that are delicious and fill you with happiness and butterflies and all that. And, and that would be a great thing in itself. Yes. But I still can see in that world people going to war over other things, over boundaries of national territory, over ideologies, uh, whether religious or or, uh, over ethnic division Mm -hmm. and just hatred. I mean, there are lots of reasons that people do the horrible thing we call war, and not all of them have to do with competing for resources. Right. There are a lot of other fundamental issues that would have to be addressed, and this particular approach would not necessarily address those. So how do we get to a point where we're able to get a different perspective, be able to to expand our minds and and see what's really important? I mean, what does it take? Maybe once we colonize space. Is this Sid Meier's civilization? Is that what we're doing now? No, no. I want to tap into one more idea here. And this isn't so much a specific prediction of one person, Mm -hmm. but there's a general idea that's been propagated by 
several people, uh, including some former astronauts known as the overview effect. Now, that was coined by Frank White, right? That particular term. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so the idea is when astronauts go up into, say, the International Space Station mm-hmm. or to a space capsule or orbiting the Earth or traveling to the moon, whatever it is, and they look back down on the Earth, mm-hmm. it's striking that many astronauts have independently reported this feeling of euphoria and connectedness and togetherness with all of humanity where national boundaries seem to fade away. Right. And the idea of human strife suddenly seems very ridiculous. And, right. The idea and that pointless, like because we're all in it together. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it, when you're from that distance and you see that everybody, every single human being that is alive, with the exception of less than a dozen people, are in your field of view right then yeah. <laughs> because they're all on that planet. It's hard to say that, you know, why are why are there divisions? I mean, why aren't there more? Why isn't there more of a connectiveness? We're clearly all in the same place. We're all on this one planet. This is also where you get this idea that uh, a lot of astronauts report feeling that the world is is ultimately a fragile place. It's yeah. this tiny blue speck, the tiny blue dot that, you know, you hear Carl Sagan talk about. And, Another phrase you often hear, hanging in space. Yeah. I mean, it is. It, it, it's it's floating out there, just vulnerable to the universe. Yes. And this is where we all have to live. Yeah. And that this results in this cognitive shift. That That is a phrase that's come up, cognitive shift, because it's not just reported as a sort of momentary feeling of euphoria or revelation, but something that stays with astronauts after they return to Earth. Right. And so if it really does happen to, to everybody, now, obviously not all astronauts have talked about this, but not all astronauts have been asked about it. Yeah, so, so it may very well be that this is a universal or near universal experience, but some have chosen to talk about it and some may not have. We right. don't know. Sure. Yeah. So we don't know yet. But the fact that so many of them experience this does make someone wonder, well, if we become a spacefaring species mm-hmm. and everybody can have that profound moment of looking back at the Earth and realizing the togetherness that we really must feel in the face of the vast universe that wants to kill us all. Right. Then maybe it would become widespread enough in humanity that war just couldn't happen anymore. Yeah. Um, that's a tough solution, right? Yeah. Yeah. Getting a lot of people. I mean, we're talking, I like the idea of it. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you narrow it down to say, Let's get the people who would be the ones responsible for waging war in the first place, like the ones who would be the ones to initiate war. Take all the executives and generals and everybody up into space. Then maybe that's a little more manageable than, say, everybody. Um, Yeah, this is one of those things where I I, I don't doubt that there is a, a truly profound moment that a person experiences when they are able to look back on the Earth and see it as this hanging globe in space. I don't doubt it at all. Uh, I wish I could experience it. It's one of those things that I think would really mean a lot to me personally. But because I seriously doubt that this is ever going to become something within the near future anyway, 
that the average person or even the quote unquote important people would be able to do. It's it's one that I fear is moot in this discussion, at least for, you know, the the near future, like the next 20 to 50 years. Um, maybe I'm wrong, which would be the best be, that would be the best mistake I ever made. I would love to be wrong about that. Well, I mean, as with uh, what we were just talking about with Bertolo having widespread nutritious food, this is something that would be good in its own right. I and mean, we can see reasons that it would be great to get lots of people into space for exploration and scientific discovery, even if it didn't cause this. Sure. So, I yeah. mean, if this is a side effect of something that would be good anyway – that that's a sort of double plus, unlike something like mutually assured destruction, where you're just hoping it works out and it's not a side effect of something that's nice. Yeah. So, Joe, what if um, what if during this era of space exploration, uh, the astronauts go up, they look back on Earth, they have this profound moment, they go to Mars and then declare war on each other because they're like, this is Mars. It's totally exactly. different. from Earth. Well, and it's Mars, the planet of war. Uh, yeah, it's it's it's. That's Who a, named Mars Mars? Uh, I think it was the Mars Bar Candy Company, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. I, you know, I haven't. They need re- to renew their contract with NASA, or it's going to expire <laughs> and become the Snickers planet. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't researched that. I mean, I know Disney. Wait, is Snickers owned by Mars? <laughs> I don't know. Dis- I think it might be Disney named Pluto. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to. They did not. Name Pluto. <laughs> Okay, look, this is not stop spreading misinformation. This isn't stuff to blow your mind. I don't know science. No, no. Uh, obviously, I'm I'm just having a little goofy fun here. But this is really like on one hand, you could say we're kind of bumming everybody out because we're talking about these technologies that were meant to end war, but haven't. And, and at least in a couple of cases, the jury could still be out. Uh, but I like to think of it as there's no reason why we can't truly examine the the concept of war and really work toward eliminating it, whether technologically or otherwise, I think probably otherwise, because a lot of the technological solutions pretty much end up with, well, we won't have war because we'll wipe everybody out. Yeah. I mean, there, there are also plenty of doomsday science fiction scenarios about that, right? You create the uh, the perfect artificial intelligence that's super smart. It's super humanly smart. And you ask the computer, you say, I want you to end all war on Earth. And the computer then runs through all the various scenarios and says that the most realistic one is to wipe out all of humanity. Therefore, you cannot have war anymore. And then the humans go, whoops, that's not a great <laughs> it's not a great outcome. So but, you know, I, I'm I am a peaceful kind of person myself. I really hope that uh, that we continue. I, I, I like the optimism and the idealism, even if it does border on the naive. It appeals to me that people who are really sincere in that and who really uh, uh, pursue that are also these folks who are far more intelligent than I am. I mean, yeah, not they, a one of these people is a dummy. No, they're all like absolutely brilliant. I mean, their their discoveries, their contributions to science. You know, I, I talk about Teller and his he's often called the father of the hydrogen bomb. He made so many different contributions to science that have nothing to do with war. But that's what he's known for. Yeah. But all of these people had made amazing contributions to the the world knowledge and to technology and science. And so I certainly hope that we see more idealistic 
innovators out there. Uh, like I feel that that uh, in some ways, uh, Musk comes across as that. He, oh, Elon he, Musk. Yeah, Elon Musk. He's certainly also an entrepreneur, but he does seem to genuinely believe in a lot of the idealistic things he talks about. Well, he's one of those big thinkers. He is. He's certainly he's certainly more intelligent than I am as well. I have no problem. No, I don't mean that. like he has a big brain. I mean like he has big projects. Oh yeah. He's he's uh willing to take on things that might seem ridiculous at first glance. And I think it's good to have people like that. Absolutely, cuz even we say this on forward thinking all the time. Even if you fail in your efforts, Along the way, you learn. Right. And by learning... It's probably going to be useful to somebody down exactly, the road. Exactly, yeah. And, of course, there are scientists who say, you learn more by failing than you ever do by succeeding. If you succeed, all you do is confirm something you thought. If you fail, you realize you were wrong and you have to learn something else. So that's kind of an interesting perspective as well. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for the uh, amazing concept here. This was a lot of fun to talk about. Well, it was my pleasure. I appreciate it. And I'll probably be asking you on again in the future. I'd love to be back. Meanwhile, you can hear us chatter about all sorts of futuristic stuff over at Forward Thinking. So definitely go do that. And for those of you who have any suggestions about future topics or tech stuff, make sure you let me know. Send me an email. My address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle at all three is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 